What's up, everybody? Hello, welcome back to another episode. We're glad to have you, and we hope you are doing so well. Yes, of course. On this Thursday, where we don't know what's happening in the world or how the weather is, because we pre-record, but nonetheless, we hope you're doing well. We hope it is such a good Thursday for you. Thank you for tuning in. Like most Thursdays, we're going to start the day off with making you really sad. Oh yeah, today's a good one for feeling sad. If you're looking to feel sad, this is the place. Oh yeah. I know sometimes when I'm feeling sad, I purposefully listen to sad music so I can sing in my car and be sadder. (laughs) So this is a similar junction. Yeah. And we're glad that you're doing it with us. Today's case is a really good example of why we do this podcast. Yes. It's a little bit of a lesser-known case, I feel like. There wasn't a whole lot of information, but there is enough for us to tell you the story. Right. So, here we are today. (laughs) But it takes place in a very small town in Massachusetts where it's the perfect example. You don't think it's going to happen in a small town. Right. And it happens. Yep. So, we're going to tell you about it. Absolutely. And truly, Katie, you're right. That's pretty much the whole point of our podcast is that... These crimes happen everywhere, and that includes to your neighbors, to your church deacon, to your bag lady at the grocery store. It happens. So this is a good story in regards to that, albeit tragic. Mm -hmm. And it is hard to find information. I found it was pretty hard, but some of the things as well, I believe, probably weren't given in complete detail because this is the story of a minor who was murdered which is awful but some of those details probably didn't need to be shed to light 100 percent. although we do have some pretty graphic details regardless so definitely a warning if you're sensitive or more vulnerable to being upset about child murder and of the like, definitely skip this one. Um, It's pretty brutal. If you guys have cases that you want us to cover, send them in to us and we'll give you a shout out at the beginning of the episode when we cover the case. And I'm only telling you guys this because today this case was suggested to us. Big thank you to Kelly F who sent this case to us through a DM on Instagram. Yes, we wrote it down immediately and again, like most of these cases, never heard of it. Yeah, and this is a really good one, so thank you very much, Kelly. Yes, thank you, Kelly. And it definitely rocked the town that happened in. Like, it was shocking, and I think even now, so many years later, it's still devastating. Yeah. And without further ado, today we will be covering The the Murder murder of of Melissa Benoit. Benoit. Okay, let's get started Right off the bat, Katie, what do you have for sources today? I have history.com. Great. Medium.com. Oh. Love them. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites. Yes. UPI.com, the Los Angeles Times, and a website called nempb2015.wixsite.com. Great. So I also had that. 
It was, it's the New England Missing Persons Bureau. Perfect. Makes sense, right? I decided to write down the whole title because I was like NPPB. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Confusing. Um, I also used La Justia, which is one of my favorite websites. The UPI Archives, AP News, History.com, Google Books, and Newspaper.com. Sweet. So I really was searching. I was scrounging, trying to find like the timeline and the little details of like the trial and the actual murder and things of the like. So, you know, we scrounged it. We scrounged it up. On Saturday, September 15th, 1990, 13-year-old Melissa Benoit vanished from her hometown of Kingston, Massachusetts. Kingston is a tiny town. It's 35 miles south of Boston. It had 9,000 residents at the time. Pretty small. Pretty little. So when a 13-year-old girl goes missing, everybody was kind of freaking out. Absolutely. Melissa had been at a friend's house, and she was headed home at around roughly 2.30 in the afternoon. She lived with her mom and her 11-year-old sister, and it was very shocking and devastating for her family, especially because just a year before her disappearance, Melissa's dad passed away suddenly at just 41 years old. So young. So Melissa had spent the afternoon at her friend's house, and on her walk home, she decided to visit her father's grave. Oh. And on her way home from visiting her father's grave, that's when she disappeared. That is so tragic because such a simple act and obviously a horrible, sad thing. Your dad dies. You're so young. You're going to visit him, talk to him. His grave was very close to her house. Mm. It was an easy walk. Like you said, she did it all the time, every day. The fact that there was this, like, routine to it and she still went missing is scary and once again touches on that point of it can happen to anyone. Thousand percent. The detective of the town asked every person in the path between Melissa's home and her friend's house Mm -hmm. slash her father's grave site Mm -hmm. if they had seen or heard anything. No one saw anything. Which is so frustrating because it's broad daylight. Right. And it's a neighborhood. I mean, people are coming and going and walking their dogs and doing errands and coming home from work. It's it's just ridiculous. Yeah. The FBI got involved pretty soon after she disappeared, which is speedy. Very impressive, honestly. It's also very alarming for the small town to be like, why the fuck is the FBI here? That must be so jarring. Oh, my God. And if you don't know, like, what's happening and you see FBI, you must be like, okay, there's a murderer. There's, you know, some, we're about to explode. Like, very scary. Like, am I in danger? Lock up your kids because there's someone out here kidnapping children. Like, it's crazy. It's oh. so hardcore. So the FBI brought in dogs to track her scent. Right. But this didn't lead to anything. So this kind of led them to believe... Maybe she was walking and she was abducted by someone in a car. Okay. Or she got into a car because her scent stopped at a certain point and they weren't able to gather anything after the fact. That makes sense. So they were thinking she was abducted. Okay. That, That makes sense. And, you know, they had so many people pitch in to look for her. And that's another aspect of that small town Mm -hmm. is that everyone's looking out for each other. Everybody knew of her in some way. I mean, she's this little girl. So in the end, there was over a thousand people who joined the search, including the fire department, 
civil air patrol agencies, um, volunteers from New England Missing Persons Bureau, and of course the tracking dogs, which were a big deal. And basically Melissa had everybody pulling for her, saying, oh, yeah. we got you, we'll find you. And I can't even imagine what her mom and her little sister were going through after losing their dad so recently. That's awful. And then having this, the devastation must have been so enormous. But I'm sure seeing all of the neighborhood and the the whole town coming together to pitch in probably was very heartwarming and comforting Mm -hmm. to them, knowing that their town had their back. For sure. I know I would feel more reassured if I knew that people of my community were helping. So that's very nice that they all did that. They just all pitched in. The FBI then threw a curveball into the investigation and had all of Melissa's neighbors take a polygraph test. Now, that's very unusual for the FBI alone, but Mm -hmm. also just in general, the investigation. That's very bizarre. Yeah, that's wild. I wonder what their thinking was behind that. Right, and why the neighbors. Right. Like, I wonder if the location was so close to her neighborhood or if... They determined that she was abducted within her neighborhood. Yeah. It's it's crazy. That's a good point, yeah. Nothing seemed to be abnormal at first. Oh. But then they got to a man. Okay. 52-year-old Henry Meinholtz. He was a local Bible school instructor and deacon. Already know. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. I'm sorry, but given the church's track record... If you are a Bible school instructor, a Sunday school teacher, or especially a priest, and a child goes missing, and the FBI comes in, they should be looking at you first. Absolutely. and I'm sorry, but... I do want to point everyone to episode 24, the Spotlight Case. Thank you. Go listen to that if you want a refresher on the truth behind the Catholic Church. Thank you. A lot of those professions (laughs) don't lead to people doing good no no i would say no if you're the rare specimen that has an occupation where you are doing good Mm. within the church and you actually are making a difference and you're not touching kids good for you because you're a rare one you are anywho anywho this henry character fails his polygraph test well isn't that interesting but he reassures the fbi he said oh no, no 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 I'm not failing this polygraph test because it has anything to do with Melissa. I failed because I, quote, often fantasize about molesting little girls. Oh, okay, Henry. And he's saying this to, he's looking the FBI dead in the eye. And he's saying, I failed the polygraph because I fantasize about molesting little girls. Not because I had anything to do with the disappearance of a little girl in my neighborhood. Right. Don't worry about me. Let me go. That's why I failed the polygraph. Everything's good. Bye, FBI. Yeah. And I can't believe he thought that was going to save his ass. Being like, no, uh, no, I do. I love the thought of molesting little girls, but I wouldn't. Not. No, I didn't. Like, I haven't. No. Are you serious? And, of course, the FBI is not going to, like, hold the door open for him and let him leave. They're going to ask him more about this. Yeah, and I think that's probably smart. 
Because now he's climbing up the ranks of who's going to be at the top of their list for suspects. He probably just booked himself the very first spot. (laughs) He not only fantasized about molesting little girls, he has also driven slowly behind girls as they're walking home or walking wherever they need to be. He would follow them in his car and masturbate. That is so messed up. He also, on his record, a decade before Melissa's disappearance, he had raped someone at knife point at a fair. Oh my god. He also had a history of making, quote, obscene phone calls. And he would drive behind and follow school buses to watch the children inside and then masturbate to the sight of them on a school bus. Oh my god. What's wild is that one of the police officers working Melissa's case yeah. was like, oh, Henry Meinholtz. What? That name sounds real. Why does the name sound familiar? Oh, that's right. I remember him. Mm. He's the one we got a call about for molesting one of his own daughters back in 1979. Oh. That's why he sounds familiar. Jesus Christ. He also, you know, now they're really, now he's in the hot seat. Oh, of course. They got him to admit to not one, not two, three decades of molesting children. Oh my God. And his family, his bloodline, a lot of incest. Yeah, I did see some stuff about that. A lot of incest. Yeah. So it's a little coincidental that a man who lives in a 13-year-old girl who just went missing's neighborhood mm. that has all this history of molesting children failed the polygraph test in relation to her disappearance. And he thought admitting to having fantasies about little girls would save his ass. <laughs> right. And then they're like, okay, that's weird. And then they look him up and they think about it and they're like, these aren't just fantasies. Also, he raped his daughter. Yeah. And then it also came out that he began an incestuous relationship with his younger sister when he was just 12 years old. Oh, God help us. So to say there was incest in the family is an understatement. And he knew it was wrong. He knew. Wow. Why else would he admit to it? Like, I don't know. I just feel, I feel as though he failed the polygraph test. He knew that he failed it. So he said, okay, here's my fantasies. They're bad, I know. Right. And then he's saying, okay, that didn't appease you, Mr. FBI man. Let me give you a little bit more information and maybe you'll let me go. Like, you telling the FBI, the FBI. Yeah. No, like literally the FBI. That you follow girls in your car and you follow school buses? What? Yeah. And you're masturbating while you're... Holy shit. That's public indecency charge right there. Just for masturbating in public. And three decades of molesting kids. Wow, I wonder how he had open access to children. Cough, cough, the church. The church, yeah. Right. Yikes. Yeah, but don't worry. He did all those things. He raped his own daughter. Yeah. And his sister. Molested kids over the course of 30 years. Right. But he didn't have anything to do with Melissa's disappearance. Why would he? That's a different guy. That's not his M.O. In a town of 9,000 people. Yeah. 
there's got to be a different child molester and predator in your neighborhood. In the thank you, in the yeah. same neighborhood. Uh huh. No, no. It, logically, <laughs> it makes sense to someone who's stupid. <laughs> Maybe. Cause what? Yeah. So the FBI agents probably gave each other the side eye, like, okay, la, la, la. we gotta get someone over to his house, like yes. yesterday. So before they even obtained a warrant. They did go to his house, and Henry let them in into the garage. And as soon as they walked in, they noticed a very strong smell. And I know what you're thinking. The smell of, like, a dead body? No, no. Paint. Okay? And they were like, hey, Henry, why? What's this going on? They noticed that there was an area of clearly fresh red paint on both the garage floor and the beams. Henry claims that uh, this was because his wife had recently hit the beam in the garage, and so he painted it bright red so she could see it a little better. But my question is, it wasn't just on the beam, it was also like splat, like on the floor. So you painted the beam and painted the floor? Like, a re- like un- no, no. It just did not check out very quickly into them prying into it. And it had, like, bright red paint. Like, what? why red? What color would you use to cover up something else that maybe is also red? Oh, God, help us. Right? Oh, for sure. He could have just, like, literally painted the whole thing black and been clean as a whistle. But no, he said, I love car safety in my garage <laughs> and I'm going to paint these beams and the floor like in this one patch. He should have done it in like traffic cone orange. 11 days after Melissa was reported missing, the police and the FBI returned to the house that Henry lived in with his wife and they had a search warrant. Unbeknownst to his wife, because she thought everything was fine and didn't know what was going on, she left them in. She said, <laughs> come on guys. Oh, please. Coffee. You want a sweet tea? Because to her, she had no idea. No, she had no fucking clue. She was like, of course, like, we'll absolutely cooperate. No problem. And then they come in and they're like, um, okay, so here's the thing. That is a shallow grave in the dirt floor of your cellar. And you'll never guess what they found. Something awful. Melissa's body was found under a pile of freshly dug dirt and coal in, like you said, Liz, a shallow grave. I think they said she only had two inches of dirt and coal on her. Wow. Which is not a lot at all. To conceal a body? No. Holy shit. Melissa was found naked except for a pink t-shirt. And her body was covered in a plastic sheet. Oh my god. There was a string found on her chest as well as her left wrist. And there were also ligature marks on other parts of her arms and legs that indicated that she had been tied up when she was still alive. Oh my god. Shortly after her remains were discovered, she was brought in to have an autopsy. And it revealed some very brutal and upsetting details, including that... 
well, for starters, Melissa had been dead for probably nine to ten days. So virtually almost the whole time she'd been missing. So one of the main things that the medical examiner looked for was evidence of sexual assault, Mm -hmm. thinking, was this sexually motivated? There was no semen that was found on or in Melissa, but there were many bruises found along the inside of her thighs that were consistent with sexual assault, which is horrifying. She also had multiple blunt force injuries to her face, scalp, neck, collarbone, right knee, both lower legs, her right foot, her right hip, and she had a large bruise on her lower back. And she also had abrasions on her knees that lined up with being dragged across like a concrete floor, i.e. the garage. Yeah. That is so awful. So pretty much anywhere there was a body part, she had bruises and marks and injury. Which is, you think of this, and they determined when doing the autopsy that she was alive for all of this. Which is horrifying to think because that is so painful and savage. Such a savage thing to do to a little girl. Mm-hmm. She's third. She's an eighth grader. Ugh. That's appalling. Yes, that's a great word for it. She also had bruises resembling what would be consistent with a ligature on her right wrist and both of her ankles. Ultimately... The medical examiner concluded that her cause of death was caused by asphyxia and also multiple blunt force injuries to her head. So she had been attacked and raped and like quite literally bound and strangled and she was alive for all of it. She was tortured. Absolutely. By her church deacon. Yes. And her neighbor. Her next door neighbor. Who had become a fatherly figure in the past year because she had lost her father. This is her next door neighbor. Mm-hmm. Her next door neighbor, which is so disturbing to me because what I'm picturing is if the FBI brought in dogs and they tracked her scent to a certain point and then lost her scent, indicating that she would have gotten in a car. What I'm thinking is she got in the car willingly with him because, of course, right. that's her fatherly figure. Yeah, she that's knows That's her next-door neighbor. That's her church deacon. He's a trusted adult. Mm-hmm. He's an elder in her church. Yeah. Why would she not get in a car with him? Right. If she's walking back home and he passes her and he offers to give her a ride the, we- the rest of the way because they're next-door neighbors. It makes sense. For sure. And it, that lines up with the tracking dogs as well. Absolutely. Good point. Henry and his wife were among the tons and tons of neighbors and volunteers to help search for her. Pathetic. And I feel bad for his wife, Jane, because she was searching for Melissa. Genuinely. She genuinely was concerned. Yes. She genuinely wanted to help with the investigation. And she had no idea. No. And I'm sure at night when they're laying in bed, she would talk about, oh my God, I just, this little girl, I can just picture her saying like, oh, I'm worried about her, all this stuff. And the whole time. She's in their basement. Mm-hmm. That's tragic. So awful. Now, this doesn't come as a surprise, to me at least. When the police were like, okay, buddy, like clearly we found her body in your dirt cellar. Clearly this is you. This is all you. So they arrested him. Naturally, good move by the police and the FBI there, I would say. And 
just about a year later, in November of 1991, the trial against Henry for the murder of Melissa began. And here's the thing. Henry immediately was like, I am not guilty by reason of insanity. And they were like, I don't know about that. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that, it's always the famous card that people pull. Yes. And as we've talked about before in some previous episodes, it's kind of really hard to get the not guilty by reason of an insanity. Like it's very hard to actually have the jury and the judge agree with you. Mm-hmm. So he was really trying though. And he, I think he was trying so hard. The stories he told in his defense clearly made up. <laughs> and he had about a year to think about it at that of point. Course. So he probably practiced his story and said all this stuff to himself and was ready during the trial. I'm going to be insane. It's always the classic, I hear voices. Oh my God. Always the classic. And you know what? As someone who worked in psych with patients who actually did hear voices, Mm. I have no sympathy for you if you're faking a I hear voices thing. No. Because that is a terrible way to live. It's traumatizing. People who hear voices live in constant fear. Yeah. It's a rough way to live. Absolutely. It's rough. Every second of your life is hard. Yeah. When you make up a, oh, I hear, the voices told me to kill her, give me a fucking break. Yeah, no. Okay, give me a break. He said that there was one voice in particular that stood out from all the others. Okay. And this voice stated, clear as day, quote, you're not a man unless you have her do it. And he listened to this voice. That he had never heard before. <laughs> right. <laughs> and didn't know where it was coming from. God, is that you? <laughs> Literally. And even if it was. What hello, kind of, right, hello. What kind of God are you believing in? Aren't you a God-fearing man? Sounds like, like Satan. the first page in the Bible, thou shalt not kill? Li- like, hello, don't I... you teach Sunday school? <laughs> and he literally did. Yeah, exactly. Ridiculous. And I think it's funny because, just to let you know, he never heard that voice again. It was just that one time. He never had voices. His childhood, his early adulthood, his actual adulthood. His wife had no idea what he was talking about because he doesn't hallucinate or hear voices. No. He pulled that out of his ass. 1,000%. And the fact that he admitted that he had never heard it before and never heard it again, dude. (laughs) That's not how hearing voices work. Yeah, literally. Literally. So Henry, of course, he was pleading not guilty by reason of insanity. He had the whole, I have a voice in my head that one time, and I listened to it for some reason. He then began to tell, in his own testimony, the story, like the details of the crime. And what stood out to me the most, besides what we told you, of course, of the injuries she had, um, is that the voice told him, again, he's listening to this voice, and I don't know why. If voice talked to me and said something, kill her. What? Yeah, one time. One time. I'd be like, <laughs> I need to meet you a little longer to know what's happening here. Right. I don't even know you. How should I take you seriously? Yeah. That's a bold claim voice. That's a very bold instruction <laughs> from a disembodied voice. And also I'm an atheist. So clearly you're not God. If you are, why are you telling me to kill a little girl? Right? There you go. It doesn't make it doesn't make sense. But 
that voice that day. So it told him, like you said, Katie, you're not a man unless you have her. And then it told him that he needed to smother her with a blanket and then bury her in his cellar. And then, like I said, Henry personally retold the story of Melissa's murder from his perspective and shared that he covered her face with a blanket and pressed down until she died. And then to ensure that she was dead, he supposedly took her head and completely submerged it in a dishpan of water. His thinking was that if he put her head underwater and there were no bubbles, she obviously wasn't breathing, which is exactly what happened. There was no bubbles. And he was like, all right, on to the basement. Disgusting. All because a voice, a voice told him to do that. Henry's attorney said that Henry remembered nothing about Melissa's murder and that he's had out-of-body experiences where he sees himself in other places, as well as recurring nightmares about being trapped in a crypt or a coffin. Hmm. Maybe those recurring nightmares are your conscience sending you guilt? Yeah. About putting a girl's body in a shallow grave? Yeah. Hello? A coffin, bro? Come on. Obviously, right? Also, that's wild that his attorney's like, he doesn't remember the murder when five minutes earlier, Henry's like, all right, let me tell you exactly what happened. At this time, I did this. And then the yeah. blanket I, I smothered her with was pink. Yes. Yeah. And the dishpan was eight inches by the, like, yeah, come on. Yeah. And his lawyer even said that, quote, he was off on the moon somewhere. Like admit, saying that he was insane and like he was on a totally different place. I think the lawyer's off on the moon somewhere. I think the lawyer needs to get a different job. I think the lawyer needs a psych evaluation. A little bit. Oh. Luckily, no one bought any of that nonsense, and Henry was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole in 1991. Amazing. Fun fact. Oh. Over 150 spectators had filled the courtroom for the verdict, and when the verdict was announced, people were yelling and cheering and just very excited for justice finally for melissa yeah one of the spectators as henry's being taken away in in handcuffs Mm -hmm. yelled what are the voices telling you now henry i love that (laughs) favorite part that is somebody i want to be friends with (laughs) it's wonderful like no one bought it at all no yeah okay our church deacon is not crazy yeah. Like we know him. We've gone to his church services. He's not hearing voices. Like right. It's, well, he wasn't. It was one time. Oh, uh-huh. for sure. <laughs> right. For sure. Yeah. Just the one time. <laughs> and he sounded nice, so <laughs> why not listen to him? When the judge issued the life sentence, he stated, It is said that my predecessors in colonial times had a gallows erected on the green in front of this courthouse and summarily sent defendants convicted, as you have been, to be hanged. I truly regret that option is not open to me in this case. Beautiful. Damn. <laughs> and I love I love this judge for many reasons. Because of that. Because obviously he saw through Henry's bullshit. And also because at one point Henry tried to claim that Melissa willingly participated in the sexual encounter. And his response, the judge... He said, your despicable efforts to add a stigma on the memory of this child only adds to the enormity of your crime. Hot, right? Like, blazing. Like, that's 
Yeah. Spitting bars. Yeah. Oh my God. Very, first of all, well said and also wow. absolutely true. That's incredible. Nobody was buying that either. That she willingly participated and she willingly got in the grave and willingly. Yeah. Come on. Come on. Wow. Yeah. Absolute idiot. Two years later, in a shocking turn of events for the small town. Yes. I personally am not too shocked, but the town was very shocked. Alan Bollinger, chief of police and head of Melissa's investigation, Mm -hmm. found himself in the very same courtroom, not as a witness, not working as a police officer, but as the one on trial. Ooh. The chief of police was charged with sexually assaulting not one, not two, three girls ages 12 to 15 in the early 80s. That's disgusting. Yeah. What a corrupt, awful man. The chief of police. Wow. Sexually assaulted three girls. Wow. That's pathetic. And wild. I'm guessing he was charged? Oh, yes. Good. Probably went to jail with Henry. I know, they could be cellmates. Like, besties. What? They could exchange stories about voices. Yeah, and what really gets me is that this chief of police was sitting in the room with the FBI, like, oh, wow, this guy, this guy assaulted kids? That's crazy. What a deplorable man. Like, hello, look in the mirror. He literally was just... I bet you the more he tried to be like that disgusting, awful man, he was like... Trying to prove that, why would he ever do that? (laughs) Clearly he hates child molesters. I can't. Ridiculous. It's very weird how rapists and child molesters end up in positions of power where they can keep taking advantage of victims. You know, Katie, that is a good point. A church deacon? Chief of police? No. (laughs) Interesting. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, that's nuts. The head of the investigation. Yeah. Himself. Very telling. And Melissa was 13. Yeah. Oh, right in his age range. Right in his age range. Uh-huh. Yep. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm. So wild. Yeah. Yeah. Now, regardless of Henry naturally giving a confession and talking in court about his uh, disembodied best friend voice telling him to kill this little girl... In 1995, he did file an appeal. He wanted to get his conviction overturned. And he claimed that showing the jury pictures of Melissa's body as it was being dug out of the crude grave and the autopsy pictures was inflammatory and not at all necessary to the trial. And this is literally, and I will quote this from the court document. So the court disagreed. And they said, and I quote, this is from the document, that photographs indicating the force applied in portraying the injuries inflicted may properly be admitted on the issue of whether the murder was committed with extreme atrocity or cruelty, as well as on the issue of premeditation and deliberation. And they also said that if the photographs possess evidential value on a material matter, They are not rendered inadmissible solely because they are gruesome or may have a, quote, inflammatory effect on the jury. So basically they were saying those photos were necessary to show what you did to this little girl. Wow. And the jury had to see them. Of course. Absolutely, right? That's evidence. Yeah. And then the court also allowed for the autopsy photos 
because they, quote, depict the victim's body at the time of the autopsy and were used by the medical examiner to demonstrate the difference between discolorations caused by a blunt object striking the victim's body and discoloration resulting from decomposition. So it was also like an education piece, like, okay, clearly this is because she was dead. This is the injuries that he gave her. Mm -hmm. And then Henry also tried to appeal in this same 1995 appeal he also said that the judge failed to instruct the jury properly that they could find no deliberate premeditation or extreme cruelty if he was found insane the court was like no mm, what we didn't say that and then they quoted exactly from the court transcript the judge telling the jury that exact instruction and they were like dude you're just dumb like you were there remember like we said that (laughs) and so in the end the state upheld Henry's conviction, and he remained in prison until 2000, about nine years later, when he died of a heart attack. Boo. Oh, boo. (laughs) But clearly nine years, nowhere near enough for the life he Mm -hmm. took. And also the fact that he had 40 years of fantasizing and molesting little girls, including his own daughter and sister. This guy needed to be out of this community forever. And now he's probably with that voice down in hell. The opposite of what he probably was going for when he became a church deacon. Isn't that funny? Oh, how the turns tables. (laughs) Crazy. Crazy shit, man. But that is unfortunately the story of the murder of Melissa Benoit. A beautiful little eighth grade girl who was known to be soft-spoken, quiet, and very friendly. I'm glad that her family got justice, and I'm glad that he did serve some time, but I wish he was still there suffering. Thousand percent. At least they know what happened. I think that can give some closure, but, I mean, how much closure can you actually get from losing your daughter? Or your sister? Yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Especially with knowing all of the details about how it happened that has to be horrific traumatic i'm sure next door right next door right somebody that they trusted Mm -hmm. yeah awful terrible stuff if you guys want to let us know what you think about this case and whether or not you think henry was insane please let us know you can find us on our instagram and twitter at true crime any all lowercase or you can send us an email at truecrimeany at gmail.com. You could also, if you so choose, head over to our website, truecrimene.com. We have a handy-dandy submission tool where you can send us cases you'd like to hear us cover, like the one from Kelly F. today. Thank you, Kelly. Thanks, Kelly. You could let us know your thoughts on this case, other cases we have covered, questions, comments, concerns, feedback, and as always... Let us know how you're doing. We hope you're doing well. We appreciate you listening. And if you would like to show us some appreciation, you could head over to Spotify and leave us a star rating. Or if you're more of an Apple podcast type listener, you could head over there and leave a star rating and or a written review if you so choose. And we'd love you regardless. Yes, we would love you regardless, but we also love and value your feedback. Absolutely. And we do take it to heart. Especially if it's nice. Especially if it's nice, but we we do listen to the constructive criticism. We just want to make this podcast as good as we can for these victims. 100%. 
And with that, we'll see you next week. Bye. Goodbye.